Good morning, brothers and sisters. This is a day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. I am Mark Hedegar. I'm blessed, honored, and humbled to be the pastor here at Salisbury Center United Methodist Church, soon to be the Salisbury Community Church, praise God, where we expect miracles, recognize miracles, and celebrate miracles together. The vision here at Salisbury Center is to love God and others, to serve as an example, to plant seeds of hope, and to nurture one another so that we can make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Announcements. Uh, Fire Department had the first fish fry. We sold 499 fish fries. We had plenty of help there uh, from the Fire Department, from the community, and from our church for the first time. So that was awesome, shaking hands and kissing babies during the dinner. We continue with Feed Our Vets this month. And uh, we have an update for our capital campaign. We have now gone over $10,000 in donations. I would like to read one of the letters we were sent. There were so many encouraging ones that this week I remember to at least save one to read. It says, Dear Pastor Mark Hedegar and Congregation, While we have never attended your church, and in all reality probably never will, since we live in Northville and have a home church. That said, as Bible-believing Christians, we both applaud and support your decision. The Methodist Church, and many other denominations in fact, has succumbed to societal pressures resulting in unbiblical teachings and practices. John Wesley would hardly recognize what the church has become. Please accept our donation and may the Lord bless you and your kingdom work. Praise God. Another example of the Holy Spirit working, touching people's hearts. We're getting money uh, sent in from all over. People that don't come to our church but understand how important the church is to the community. You've heard me preach it before. The church used to be the hub of the community, and the government took it all away because the church allowed them to. And uh, we're fighting to get that back. We are absolutely fighting to make it the hub again, by golly. Forget government help. We, we want to do it from the church. So praise God. Today's memory verse comes from Psalm 5, verse 7. Psalm 5, verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in awe of you. Let us pray. Father God, we are gathered here to hear your voice amid the noise of a world that doesn't recognize this season of self-examination and instruction. Too long we've listened to the serpents among us whose craftiness beckons us away from faith and faithfulness. We delight in forbidden fruits and complain when they turn sour. Lead us, Holy Spirit, through the wilderness of our own creation, that we may once more find our way to you. Instruct us in the way we should go and counsel us day by day. Help us to rediscover your steadfast love. Lord, bear us up through this season of self-examination that we might feed on the bread of your word, open ourselves to your presence, and let go of all the idols that surround us. Teach us to worship and serve you with joy and delight and uprightness of heart through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please join me in a call to worship. We've entered into the season of Lent. We have entered a wilderness time. Sundays are not a part of Lent, yet this day of worship 
is an oasis in the desert. We're here to help, I'm sorry, we're here to worship the God of all creation. Today we revisit the Garden of Eden. We gather to remember God's revelation in Jesus. We remember God's overflowing generosity. We worship God who gives us choices and limits. We want to learn to make good choices. Today we remember the temptations Jesus faced. This morning's Lady Scripture comes from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on a pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We move to joys and concerns this morning, and there's a stomach bug apparently still going around. We've still got people coming down with COVID, uh, not to mention we have the regular flu back all of a sudden, but there's plenty of people to pray for. I pray that you're not one of them, but if you are, feel free to text me, call me, email me, you know, message me, uh, whatever, so I, can, so I can lift you up in prayer. Let us pray. Father God, some days are just too hard. We're hurting, we're struggling. Some of us are fighting fear and worry at every turn. We thank you in the midst of it all. You haven't left us to fend for ourselves. Forgive us for even doubting you are there. Forgive us for thinking you've forgotten us or abandoned us. Forgive us for believing we somehow know the better way. You are fully trustworthy. You are all-powerful. You are able. You are Lord over every situation, no matter how difficult it may seem. We pray for those who grieve today. We ask for your comfort to surround those who weep. We pray for the peace of your presence to cover our minds and thoughts. As you remind us, the enemy can never steal us out of your hands. He never has the final say over our lives. We are kept safe in your presence forever, whether in life or in death. We thank you that your ways are higher than ours and your thoughts are bigger than our thoughts. We lay it all down at your feet, every burden and every care this morning. We believe that is the safest place for it to be. We love you, Lord. We need your fresh grace. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray.
Amen. The title to this morning's message is Distractions, Disruptions, and Defeats. Distractions, Disruptions, and Defeats. Last week we had our first talk on connecting to the well. We all agreed this nation lost that original connection when Adam and Eve committed the very first act of disobedience, sinning against God. And mankind has gone downhill ever since. Our nation needs to come back to God and get connected to the well, that well of living water and life eternal. Many of us have read and prayed over Scripture, including Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We see in the Bible, God had a plan from the very beginning through his son, Jesus Christ. We read of John the Baptist recognizing this Jesus in John 1.29. It reads, the next day he, meaning John, saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was sent to die and take away the sin of the world, at least those who recognize and accept him as Lord and Savior. As a whole, our nation has lost its moral compass. We've been focusing on the physical instead of the spiritual for far too long. We've become a nation of me's and I's, setting ourselves up, as idols. We need to come back to God and get connected to the well. The Lord gave me an analogy of a football team to try and explain our individual roles, our team roles, and the role of the enemy as we walk our Christian walk. Now, if you don't like football, imagine a basketball team or any other team sport. So let's say you're considering joining a specific football team, anyone but the Patriots, of course. I'm kidding. You know that the owner will pay a pretty high price to have you on his team. And he won't force you to join the team. He'll ask you. He'll invite you. Maybe he'll have other players come visit you or or call you to encourage you to join. They'll tell you all the good things about the owner. They might tell you how special the teammates are. They might brag about the benefits of being on that specific team, hoping you'll join them. So you decide to join the team and you get in the playbook to learn everything you need to know. That playbook is a blueprint of your responsibilities as well as how the team functions overall. Everybody learns or grasps this knowledge at different levels, of course, but the goal is to be well-versed in the playbook. You learn the plays, you study them every day, sometimes several times a day. You watch films on what you'll see when you play other teams, your enemy, if you will. You see what formation they set up, and you have an idea of how they'll attack you. So you review the playbook and how to handle their attack. So after you've gained the knowledge, the coach will invite you to the practice squad where you and your team practice the plays from the playbook. Now, part of that practice is for you specifically. You're to take the knowledge from the playbook and put it into action on the field. You'll make mistakes, of course, but the coach will rerun the plays you need help with so you improve your performance. You don't mind, or at least you shouldn't mind, if your teammates make a suggestion or a correction to your performance 
because you want to improve. You want to be better, both for yourself and the team, and I would guess for the owner. At that point, the coach may direct you back to the playbook to read and learn a specific play. It may include the goal and reason for that play. It'll probably explain not just your responsibility or role, but the roles of the other players as well. But it doesn't do any good to just know the play. You need to learn the application as well. That knowledge has to be formed into action. Knowledge alone will never win the game. Knowledge alone will never defeat your opponent. But knowledge and application will give a player the confidence he needs to step foot on the playing field. I've read stories where coaches make new recruits carry that playbook, that book of knowledge, if you will, with them everywhere they go. They consider that playbook the foundation of a player's success, and they encourage players to stay in that book, that well of information, constantly. They're taught to memorize it, and sometimes they're called to recite a play verbally. So to be successful, players must stay connected to that well. Through that connection, they gain knowledge and wisdom to be used in the heat of battle. They combine that knowledge with application, and they not only become confident, they become victorious. I don't have to tell you what happens to players who refuse to learn and review those instructions from that playbook, or the ones that become lazy or complacent, thinking they already know everything, and see no need to go back to the well and review the game plans. We see it manifest on the field of play. Maybe they miss a block or a tackle, depending on what position they play. How many times have we seen a quarterback throw the ball to the right and see the receiver make a move to the left? That tells the viewer one of them didn't follow the playbook, or in extreme cases, one of them may have felt they didn't need the playbook and decided to do it their own way. Mistakes are made throughout the game and the season, of course. After all, the players are humans, not robots. The coach doesn't expect them to be perfect, as in being error-free. He just expects them to stay connected to that well, that playbook, and do their best throughout the season. And while each individual is responsible for his own actions, the teams who play well together are often the most successful. But... Sometimes we see people's emotions get in the way of their performance. Maybe the individual player gets upset with his own performance and takes it out on his teammates. Or maybe he's so focused on his mistake that he can't get past that. Chances are pretty good that the rest of his game will be off until he lets go of his mistakes. On a good team, his teammates will come along beside him, encouraging him, lifting his spirits and telling him to press on towards the next play, suggesting he not dwell on mistakes and to be ready for the next challenge. After the game, the coach will probably direct that player back to the well, back to the playbook to review the game plan. He may even set up that same play during practice to give the player a chance to take that knowledge and apply it in the field. The coach may even decide to to run that play over and over and over until a player learns. Now on a bad team, things could go differently. We've seen players make mistakes on the field, and instead of being encouraged by their teammates, they're singled out for their mistake. 
Some players respond this way because they feel they're better than their teammates. They display an attitude of haughtiness and believe other players are beneath them, and they have no problem saying it or showing it. That lack of discipline, gone on long enough, gives their opponents, the enemy, if you will, confidence. You see, the enemy learns which buttons to push when they see weakness. They see a pattern of behavior and they exploit it, hoping your emotions get the best of you, hoping your emotions take you out of the game, away from that knowledge you learned from that well, that playbook. And if they can get enough teammates fighting among themselves, they can easily defeat them. Nobody said being a team player is easy. Not only do they have to contend with their own emotions and those of their teammates, they also have spectators to deal with. And not all of them are on the same side as the players. Those that are on the same side will yell and cheer and encourage their players on the field. They'll celebrate every good play and scream with joy every time their team scores. But sometimes they yell and jeer when they see mistakes made. They act more like the opposing team than a supporter. They become more like the enemy and taunt players who don't perform up to their expectations. We call them sideline coaches. They don't have any skin in the game, as they say, but they're quick to judge and condemn. Now, we expect those attitudes and actions from the enemy. That's why we call them the enemy. The enemy doesn't want us to succeed, and we use distractions and disruptions to defeat us. We need to remember the enemy has their own playbook too. Part of their training involves learning the playbooks of their opposing teams. They study our formations. They watch videos of our games and learn our moves. They know how we'll respond under certain conditions and situations, and they plan their attacks accordingly. Those distractions and disruptions start immediately too, as soon as the players emerge from the tunnel. As soon as they enter the field of battle, they're insulted and booed, called names, and sometimes much worse. Some players respond emotionally and are distracted from their game plan. But the professionals keep their emotions in check. They realize the enemy's game plan and actually expect it to happen. The difference is they're prepared emotionally when it does happen. The difference is they focus on their own game plan. They recall the plays in the playbook that well, if you will, and they stay connected to that instead of their surroundings and circumstances. We call that playing through adversity. And these are the players that usually succeed, even if they suffer occasional losses. There's only one team I know that went to the Super Bowl undefeated. So players are called to study and do their best, learning from their mistakes as they go along. Anybody see a sermon here? The coach in the story is Jesus. The teammates are his followers, us. And the playbook is the Bible. The stadium is the world, and the opponent or the enemy is Satan. As Christians, we are called to invite people to our team. Jesus gives this command in Matthew 28, 19. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are called to recruit people on our team. And just like the football players, we will tell them how great Coach Jesus is 
We would allow them to ask questions because we all know it's a big decision to make. An eternal decision, actually. When they join the team, we give them our playbook, the Bible. We encourage them to read it, to study it, and to learn it. We may include classroom instruction for the new team members, which includes how to act or how to respond under different scenarios in life. We may remind them that Proverbs 4-5 tells us to get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Like teammates on the field, we come alongside them and encourage them with love and grace. Hebrews 3.13 commands us to encourage each other daily. And Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 teaches us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As individuals, we're charged with connecting to the well and staying connected. We are to prepare for battle with the enemy. Just as a football player wears protective equipment, we too are supplied equipment to protect ourselves. Ephesians 6.13 tells us to take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on the evil day and having prevailed against everything to stand firm. Verses 14 through 18 of our playbook goes on to tell us just what that armor is. Please write that down and study it, then apply it. Ephesians 6, 14 through 18, the armor of God. We are warned of our opponent, the enemy, throughout our playbook. We're also taught how to defeat him. But how can we defeat him if we haven't read or studied the playbook? Hosea 4, 6 warns us, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We're called to stay connected to the well and review our playbook daily. The results of not staying focused can be found in 2 Corinthians 11, 3. I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by its cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 1 Peter 5, 8 warns us to discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around, looking for someone to devour. Billy Graham said, never, never underestimate Satan's power and never underestimate his ability to deceive us and make us think he isn't to be feared. In fact, he even deceives some people into thinking he doesn't exist. He's not as powerful as God, but he still is a powerful spiritual force or works against God in every way he possibly can. But if we were to read Colossians 2.15 in our playbook, we'd know that Satan is already defeated. Jesus won the victory over him through the cross and the resurrection. Hebrews 2.14 tells us Jesus, through death, destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. The problem is, we allow our opponent access to our lives, and he is an expert in lies and deception. The serpent couldn't and didn't hold Eve down and force her to take a bite of the forbidden fruit in order to destroy her. Instead, he deceived her into destroying herself 
by falling into his trap. Jesus said this about the devil in John 8, 44. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But our playbook tells us Jesus gave us authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. We have authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt us. And if I may take some liberty here, Jesus says we are not in the stadium. I'm sorry. Jesus says we are in the stadium, but not of the stadium. We are not of this world anymore once we accept Christ. We become citizens of heaven. Romans 12, 2 teaches us, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what do we care if the world boos us or calls us holy rollers or tell us that we've changed? Praise God for that. Praise God that we've changed enough so the people in the stadium see a difference in our game. Jesus offers the world and us spiritual water. To believe in him and be filled with his Holy Spirit means we are cleansed of our sins, washed clean by his blood. But that is not the end. We still have work to do. Charles Stanley said, People who receive salvation and then sit back, content to go to heaven when they die, have missed the point. Salvation isn't just about heaven. It also allows us to be used for God's glory here on earth. He lives through us, expressing his life-changing truth so we can impact others. Just like the owner of the football team, Jesus was willing to pay a very high price to have us on his team. As a matter of fact, he paid for us with his life. He offers us eternal life, peace with God and the Holy Spirit. He holds out that cup of salvation, but he doesn't force it on us. We must take it and drink of it. Once saved, we have all we need to fill those voids, the hunger, the thirst in our hearts. And if we do feel that worldly thirst again, we must go back to our faith in Christ. We must stay connected to the well. We are going to make mistakes, brothers and sisters, but just like that one perfect football team, only one person has been perfect in the flesh. We all know it. It was Jesus Christ. We have work to do, not just in our lives, but in the lives of family and friends and co-workers. We can make a difference. But in order to be effective, we must stay connected to the well. Let us pray. Father God, we believe your word, and it says we will not be moved by what's going on around us. Every time we speak your word, the angels hear it, and they hearken to the voice of his word. They hasten to carry out that word and bring it to pass. We cannot be defeated or destroyed. We condemn right now every tongue of fear trying to speak to us, every tongue of terror, every tongue of disaster and tragedy. Nothing can defeat us, for if God is before us, who can be against us? We declare that God is on our side. Jesus is our Lord, and every mountain of fear, terror, and plots against us is removed right now in the name of Jesus. We, we declare today that Satan has no power over our lives, that every weapon he has been 
he has has been defeated, that fear has been cast out, that love makes our faith work, and therefore we cannot fail. God's word cannot fail, and that's what we're made of, his word, made in his image, after his likeness, with the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of his words. Therefore, by the blood of Jesus, we dwell in the secret place of the Most High. We abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He has given his angels charge concerning us to guard us in all our ways. They will bear us up in their hands, lest we dash our foot against a stone. Satan, we command you to take your hands off us that are gathered, those listening outside, those listening at home, and those in our community right now. We command you to cease and desist in any and all attempts to bring distractions, destruction, defeat, or harm to us and our families. Father God, we ask that you place a hedge of protection around us, our homes, our families, our workplaces, our schools, our hospitals, our communities, and our nation. In Jesus' name, amen. As creatures of flesh, it's very tempting to want more for ourselves. But as Christians and followers of Christ, we realize we always have enough that God provides for us in our needs. We come to understand he rewards us for our faith and our obedience through our generous offerings. So today we give with gladness as cheerful givers because God has blessed us richly beyond anything we deserve. We move to the offering this morning and as I say every week, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. We are so blessed to have these people, so blessed for the people in the community, so blessed for the people in our church, so blessed for the people listening at home. We now have apparently a couple cars that listen outside on Sunday and listen over the radio. Just, we are so blessed. I thank you, thank you for all you do for your church and your community. Let us pray. By your surprising grace, O oh God, our eyes are opened, our ears unstopped, and our hearts are attuned to the needs of others. We give today so more people may know your acceptance and forgiveness. We support our ministry, your ministry, of preaching, teaching, and healing among us and through the outreach of our church. Expand our horizons, we pray, and tear down the limits of our caring. In Christ's name, amen. Let the worship of God be a part of all you do this week, not just on Sunday. Serve him with joy and praise. Avoid the distractions of this world and stay focused on our creator. Seek his strength and courage to be faithful when faced with earthly temptations. Listen daily for his counsel and instruction through the Holy Spirit. And now receive the benediction. Scripture says we need more than bread for our lives. We must feed on every word of God. So go, feast on the words of the Most High, our Creator God. Be overwhelmed by His goodness and let your life be your praise until we gather again. Amen. Until we meet again, brothers and sisters, may God bless and keep each and every one of you. Please stay safe, stay in His word, and stay, stay connected to the well. God bless you all.